Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. Shalom, shalom. Good to see all of you. Can you hear me? Give me a thumbs up. Okay, so good to see all of you. Good to see you, Jeremy. Shalom. <clears throat> this uh, this is going to be a, this has been a challenging fellowship for me. Just you know, there's a word in Hebrew called Yishuv Hadat, like just serenity of the mind. I have not had serenity of the mind in maybe a good week or so. And so as a, just on that front, this fellowship was very challenging. And I hope that, that we're able to come together for this fellowship. And whatever Hashem gives us, I will gladly take. Um, I, I want to start off, you know, of course, it's so good to see all of you. And, and I want to thank all of you for reach, so many of you for reaching out to me last week. Um, your prayers... Many of you turned to me after the last fellowship, which I missed. It's almost as if you'd sensed that something wasn't quite right. So uh, after last week, um, what happened was our little baby, Mordechai Shimshon, uh, had a really bad cold and cough that just wasn't going away. And it seemed like it was getting worse and worse. It's so difficult for me to even look. It's hard for me to look at him because babies are just so fragile. You know, they're so tiny. Anyways, we uh, sent a, a recording to the doctor of his coughs, and the doctor immediately called and said that he feared it may be something called whooping cough. And that, uh, you know, according to the doctor, that is uh, quite dangerous for babies. And he suggested we immediately go to the emergency room, which we did. And, you know, there's, there's no place that brings forth prayers from the deepest part of your soul than uh, in the emergency room when you're there with your newborn baby. And uh, pray we did. Anyways, that's where we spent the entire day. And that's why I wasn't uh, with you, despite the fact I had real some real stuff I was so excited to share with you. But I understand that Jeremy and Tehillah really rose to the occasion. Baruch Hashem wasn't whooping cough, uh, just a bad cough, and he's getting better every day. So thank you for your prayers and your love and your support. Okay, so... I can my opinion on what happened there, or at least my perspective or my experience of what happened there. What happened there is that Ari is the most, um, what's the word, engaged father that I've ever met. And the baby's coughing quickly, run to the emergency room. And so I was not concerned. I'm like, yeah, Ari's dealing with some baby issues. It'll be fine. I got six of these guys. They figure it out. And so I okay, was well, concerned. Thank you Praying. for your prayerful concern, Jeremy. The doctor told us to go. It wasn't just me and my paranoia. <laughs> but that's true. I am, a, I am a, a vicarious hypochondriac for my children in specific. And I am now losing my voice. I hope I get through this fellowship without losing it totally. But, um, okay, so where are we? So let's dive in, okay? Now, we're in the book of Shemot, the book of Exodus and Parshat Ve'er, the second portion of the book. And we find ourselves really in the thick of slavery. And I have to tell you, the reading this now, at this moment in Jewish history, the slavery that the children of Israel endured in Egypt, it, it takes on a new perspective. You know, I mean, hundreds of years, they were brutally, brutally subjugated and enslaved, not just to anybody, but to the strongest nation in the world. Eventually, they must have struggled with giving up hope altogether and said to themselves, how in the world are we ever going to get out of here? We're the small people, if we're even a people at all. And here we are enslaved and subjugated to the global superpower who has no interest and no intention of ever letting us go. There's no getting out of this one. There's no getting out of here. This is our fate for the rest of time. 
I can imagine that a lot of them felt that way. And they would have really been legitimate because according to the laws of nature, if God hadn't intervened, Egypt was such a powerful, powerful force in, in the world that they could still be that today if there had not been uh, intervention. And so according to the laws of nature, there was no way they could ever leave. There's no country on the horizon that could even challenge Egypt militarily. Even with the mental gymnastics in the, all the mental gymnastics in the world, it must have felt impossible to even contrive a way that they could ever get out. In what scenario, in what constellation of events could they ever get out? And on some level, that's how it feels for us right now in Israel. Tell me if I'm wrong, Jeremy, but a lot of, you know, I just spoke, was just speaking last night to a dear friend from Iban Nachal. I can tell you who it was later. I don't want to say his name now. He was just released from the army where he's been stationed in Gaza for well over two months. And I asked him, how does it feel to be home? And uh, he said, it's a, you know, it's, it's a journey. He's not quite sure yet how it feels to be home. That's a whole nother world of reacclimation. And, uh, you know, there's a whole country that needs PTSD and to be dealt with. But I, I said, how does it feel? And he said, um, he said he doesn't see himself as having really been released from the army. Rather, he's being given a temporary leave of absence until the real war, as he said, in the north breaks out. He said that there's no way out of it. He said that we're going to be fighting for our existence for the rest of our lives. And that is how so many soldiers, citizens, Jews in Israel and around the world feel. And it makes sense to feel that way. Let's just say we defeat Hezbollah, which is much more powerful than Hamas. Then what? What about Syria and Iran and Yemen? And if we survive all of those wars, by the time they're done, Hamas will have regenerated and metastasized, and then we'd have to deal with them again. This isn't about one organization or one country or one grievance or any grievance at all. This is a war of the global jihad, and there is no compromise with it. Their goal is to wipe us off the map. So we either fight for our lives and the lives of our families, and we fight and we fight and we fight, or we surrender and die. You know, much like the Jews of Egypt who saw no way out, it's almost equally difficult to see a way out of our perpetual war and death and grief and just constant, constant, constant. And Jews, we don't love, we don't like the fight. We don't want to fight. We want peace. We want love. We want compassion. We want technology. We want serenity. We want, you know, you know what we want. You know who we are. And then we, we are stuck in this perpetual fight for our lives. And, um, you know, so in, in Egypt, it appeared that we were in the situation which there was no possible salvation. And so today we look towards our horizons and we channel the words of David Melech of King David. From where will our salvation come? How is salvation possible? What are we going to defeat the hundreds of millions of jihadists and their sympathizers around the world? And that's what I want to focus our fellowship on today. And I'm eager to share my heart on it. Before I do, I'm super excited to introduce both Tahila and Jeremy, who are going to absolutely light you up. They're going to light you up. I'm serious. I have a general idea of what they're going to share. And if your experience is anything like mine, you should take a minute and go get your sunglasses because the light they're about to shine will be that blinding. Really, I'm telling you. You know, Tila does this uh, sometimes. We're always excited. Tila comes by in the morning on Shabbat before synagogue and uh, for a cup of coffee or whatever, you know, mushroom root concoction she drinks instead of coffee. And this Shabbat, she shared one of her prophetic downloads with us. 
and it put me in a really good mood for the rest of Shabbat. It really put my soul at ease and it gave me tremendous encouragement. And so I'm very excited for y'all to experience that as well. So here is Tehillah. Hi, everyone. So as I'm sure you all know, Israel is currently standing trial in the International Court of Justice in Hague on the accusation of genocide brought forth against us by the country of South Africa. Now, if you're a person with any modicum of honesty and integrity, it's obvious what a ridiculous farce that is. Israel is the only democracy literally surrounded by terrorist organizations as the recognized leadership of the people around us, flanking us in the East, in Judea and Samaria, in the West, in Gaza. We have not only the Hamas, but also Islamic Jihad and the PLO, which is really just a terrorist organization in suits. And in the North, we have the Hezbollah, a terrorist organization running South Lebanon. In the South, we have the Yemenite Houthi terror group pirating the entire Red Sea and shooting onto Eilat. And in all of that, we continue to be the only real democracy in the region trying our best to minimal, minimize civilian casualties, creating humanitarian corridors and delivering humanitarian aid to our enemies at the expense even of our own soldiers' lives. And all of that in a region of the world where actual real genocide of Yazidis, Kurds, between Sunnis and Shiites are actually a day-to-day -day occurrence. Israel is being brought to trial in the middle of a defensive war on claims of genocide and not the people who actually tried to commit genocide against us. The farce is so great that you, at first instinct, just want to say, whatever, this is ridiculous. I'm going to change the channel. I'm not even going to pay attention to this. But then something caught my eye, and that's the kind of evidence being brought forth in this trial. I thought that this trial, we would hear the same claims as we always hear against Israel. You bombed a hospital, who cares? You know, the hospital wasn't actually bombed. You bombed a school, it doesn't matter if the school was actually used as a missile launching site. The usual claims they were used to hearing made against Israel. But then I saw on a huge screen in the International Court of Justice, they brought this video as a piece of evidence against Israel. <laughs> Israeli soldiers singing and praying and getting themselves motivated, quoting verses about destroying Amalek. That is being brought as evidence that we are genocidal. Now, most Israelis who saw this video after October 7th, after seeing actual genocidal people raping and killing and kidnapping and burning, would understand that destroying Amalek is the symbolic imperative that we have, the imperative that every Jew has to destroy evil. Now these soldiers, who knows who came back and who didn't, were literally accepting upon themselves the, with unbelievable courage and self-sacrifice the mitzvah, the commandment of defending Israel and defending their fellow Jews against modern-day Amalek. Because what was Amalek to us? Amalek to us was the ones in the, were the ones in the desert who went after the weakest stragglers, the elderly, the infirm, the babies and the children. And you have Jews willing to leave their families and their jobs and to go fight for good over evil, for morality over cruelty, even at the expense of their own lives. These aren't Jews. They're super Jews. Who could watch that and not be moved by their dedication? And now imagine the scene of these holy heroes that I could only wish to be dust at their feet, being portrayed on a massive screen in the International Court of Justice as these serious face suits from every nation, including nations that unabashedly actually kill and massacre and commit genocide. And they're sitting there self-righteously passing judgment on the holiest and most righteous of the Jewish people. And I said to myself, that does not seem like something that happens in the normal world. This seems like a drama of actual mystical, mythical, biblical proportions. The Jews are standing trial in the eyes of the world for following the Torah. This must be discussed somewhere in the Tanakh. 
And in my searching, I came upon Yeshayahu, Isaiah chapter 43. Now these verses here in, in chapter 43 are usually understood as a parable because how could such a scene even be imagined realistically as literal, you know, as a literal prophecy a few thousand years ago. And so the translations are often influenced by that, but really you can only depend here on the Hebrew. So I'm going to try to translate it for you on my own. It says, We're told that there's going to be a time where all of the peoples will gather together and the nations will assemble. That's something that up until 100 years ago, you couldn't really imagine any kind of assembly that included all of the nations. But now, in, you know, in our times with the United Nations, that actually is a possible thing for all the nations to be represented. And it says, we're told that there's going to be some sort of trial situation and one of the countries will step forward and bring witnesses and testimony. And before they've even finished bringing their testimonies forth and heard the other side, they're already going to justify them and proclaim them true. What it's describing to us is something like this. All the nations gathering together and then one of them is going to speak first and they're going to bring witnesses and everyone is just going to already know the outcome even before the trial has been completed. It's like a scene of a farce where everyone knows that everyone's going to, that they're going to hear these testimonies and already proclaim them to be true without actually having an opportunity for the other side to bring their own evidence in a real way. And so we're being given this picture of these nations sitting together knowing the conclusion ahead of time before there's even a defense. And then what happens next? In verse 10 it, sa in verse 10 it says, it says, what happens now in this stage of the trial? Hashem says, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servants whom I chose in order that you know and believe me and understand that I am he before me, no God was formed and after me none shall be. In response to this trial, Hashem says, you are my witnesses and my servants. What does that mean? If we are the witnesses, well, then who's the defendant? Who's standing trial? Who is really standing on trial? Hashem says, you think you're standing on trial. It's actually me who's standing on trial. You are the witnesses. Because what does it mean to believe in God? What is the idea of God? It means to believe in goodness, that there's an actual ultimate standard of true and false, of good and evil. They are objectively judged and judgeable. And they aren't relative. They're not political. They're not biased. And we have an actual imperative to stand up for what is true and right in the world. Nothing less than that is on trial right now. And Israel is not on trial. That is on trial. Israel is the one sent by Hashem as the witnesses, as the representatives, and as the proof that that does indeed exist. And when we see the most righteous of Israel on this huge screen singing and praying to merit to fight evil, and for that video to be watched under the disapproving eyes of even the most corrupt of nations who have no moral leg to stand on to judge anyone, least of all Israel. That is Hashem bringing his witnesses as evidence for all to see this truth. And why? What is the purpose? If we know from verse 9 that no one is going to change their mind if they've already decided, so what is the purpose of that? And Hashem says, so that you know and believe me and understand. Now this word understand, tavinu in Hebrew, it's pretty rare in the Bible because we're often told to believe. We're often told to know something, but understanding. Understanding is in short supply. And I'm sure I'm not only speaking for myself when I say throughout this war, I often find myself on a roller coaster of emuna of, of faith, but I try to strengthen myself and have faith in Hashem. You know, Hashem has a plan. But man, I do not have a lot of understanding. I never understand why it's so hard. From funeral to shiva, we hear these amazing words of strength and faith. 
along with people just saying we don't understand Hashem's ways. And I searched high and low in the Bible for the word understanding. And if someone wants to correct me, then go right ahead. But I think if I'm not mistaken, this is actually the only promise in the Bible of the Jewish people actually meriting to understand something. And since understanding is so hard to come by, and there's so little that we actually really do understand about Hashem and the way he runs the world, if he tells us that there's something that we can understand, it might be worth it not might, it is worth it to actually pause and listen. What does Hashem say that we're supposed to understand from watching this entire farce? In verse 11, Hashem says, Anochi, Anochi Hashem, mi Moshiach. What you're supposed to understand is that I am the Lord and besides me, there is no savior. What is all of this drama happening for? The people who hate us are not gonna be convinced. The key is that we are going to watch this scene and from watching that happen, we are going to understand that we have no one to depend on except for Hashem. This is not being done for the UN or for our international standing. This mythical proportion <laughs> scene is taking place for one reason, that we finally understand the only thing that maybe we can understand in this whole situation, and that's that there's nothing and no one that is going to save us other than Hashem. It's not gonna be our own strength. It's not gonna be the US. It's not gonna be the UN. And to finally internalize that our success and victory are completely dependent on putting our full faith in the only one we can rely on, on Hashem, that is the purpose of this whole scene. And I think that that is the message that Yeshayahu is telling us in prophesizing about this scene that we really see unfolding before our eyes. So for me to know that there's something for us to learn from this, and this is sent to us by Hashem, that gave me a lot of strength in the face of all of the pain and even humiliation that comes from watching this ridiculous, uh, this ridiculous spectacle. And to me, it gave a lot of strength and I'm going to work on trying to really internalize that understanding as the true message of this trial. So with that, I wish everybody a good week of strength and Muna and understanding. <laughs> How good was that? How good was that? I mean, what, so good, so perfect. Like, why did it put me in a good mood? Because when you hear the prophets describing what's playing out with crystal clear accuracy, you know, it just assures us, just on the most simple level, that everything is going according to plan. Because that is a truth that we may know in our heads, but it's getting increasingly difficult to internalize that into our hearts. You know, um, well, I'll get into more of that later, but uh, let me just uh, hand the baton off to Jeremy. Jeremy, take it, take it from me. Well, yeah, when Tehillah uh, taught me that over Shabbat, I, my mouth dropped because almost every English translation of Isaiah chapter 43, because it's such an uncanny, it's like, it's an impossible scenario. It's translated not as this is a prophecy of what will be, but it's like, this is a parable of something. The nations are going to hold you on trial and they're going to bring their witnesses. And before the witness is even done, they're already going to make their decision. And the whole thing is like, what? And then we're actually watching that one nation, South Africa, brought forth their case and the International Court of Justice of the United Nations. I mean, imagine the scenario, the Hezbollah, the Hamas, the Jihad Islami, the Fatah, our terrorist organizations, the IDF is defending Israel from them, and we're being held on trial? You can't make this up. We were singing a song. They actually did genocide. They came into Israel and just killed and raped and took our people that are still being held hostage. The Jews, they sang a song before they went out into battle. We're going to hold them on trial. And you're like, 
what is going on? It's such a parody. You can't make this up. And what we're seeing now, that's what Isaiah was, that's what Tila was pointing to. It's like, you don't need to believe. You understand now. You understand that without God, there is no truth. Without God, there is no good. Without God, there is no light. The whole world, these people that are judging us in Europe, they're Vikings, morally, that are wearing a suit. And so they don't have morals and they don't have truth. They have either multiple gods or no God at all. And so all that Israel should do now is do what's right and what's true and to stand alone against all of those nations because we stand with God. And so I was invited last week to speak at the Sovereignty Conference in Jerusalem. And the hall was packed. It was broadcast on Israel National News, on JNS. I think hundreds of thousands have already watched it online. And I had a very clear strategy when I went into this very political conference. I knew that everyone was going to be talking about politics and geopolitics and strategy and security and all of the technicalities that go along with the politics and the war that's happening in Israel. And I want to share with you very much what was inspired by Tehillah's insight, but really what's inspired by our fellowship. This was a clip from that conference. Check this out. Just days ago, I went down to the south to visit the kibbutzim, to visit the site of the music festival, to see reality with my own eyes, not just on a screen. And you walk around, and could you just put the image here? The image that Ohad talked about, there's a picture of it. And the question has to arise. How could we be so wrong? So wrong. The political establishment was wrong. The military establishment was wrong. The Shabak, the Mossad, all of the Modi'in, everyone wasn't just wrong. It's like peace now, flying flags to the people that killed them. How could we be so wrong? So the first thing, people need to go and visit the South as soon as possible. It should be like a march of the living for the Jews in Israel. Never again in Auschwitz is an important message for the people in Europe and maybe even in America. But never again here is far more urgent, far more relevant. But that begs to ask the question, how did we get it so wrong? And I think the answer is, and you can really see it also in the conference, 75 years, the only thing that matters has been absent. Um, it's the littlest word, but it means everything. For 75 years, Israel has been dedicated to building a godless state with peace now. God is absent. And without God, there will never be peace, not now and not ever. Did we really think, did our leaders really think, a Palestinian state, that we were going to make a move that is in total contradiction to the Torah after the Jewish people have returned to this land after 2,000 years and we were going to be successful? Did we really think that we would do something that's in total denial of the vision that the prophets gave us that's absolutely in contradiction with the commands of the Torah and we were somehow going to bear fruit of success and prosper with such a move 
Obviously not. It was the opposite of the truth. It's the exact wrong. Why? Because the fundamental paradigm that the, that the modern state of Israel sees the world through is warped. They're constantly worried about peace now. We don't want peace now. We want peace forever. Can we just show that sign, please? And that will only happen when we have enough faith to stand alone against the nations, to do what's right, what's moral, and what's true, to stand alone because we stand with God. Until we bring God into this conversation, we will never be successful. Yeah. So that was what I had to say. The whole conference, it was funny. There was one man who uh, is specifically a political diplomat to Christians. And then everyone else were members of Knesset, speakers, thinkers, journalists. It was just me. And I was the only, like the only one. I wanted so much for Ari to be on the stage. And I'll tell you why. Because Ari would have talked about the Beit HaMikdash. And I um, missed that. I sent Ari all of my notes before the conference to get his feedback. But he was so busy doing whatever Ari does that he didn't give me the feedback. But I did my very best to bring in the littlest word that means everything. And that word is God. And until Israel brings God into this conversation, yes, then we will be at perpetual war. Because what happened on October 7th, it's just like our personal lives. Nothing happened to Israel. It happened for Israel. And it happened so that we would realign ourselves, wake us up, to see reality for what it is and to reach out to God, to bring him back into our lives, not just on an individual level, but on a national level. And so when you see what's happening on the international court, that the whole world is watching Israel as we're on trial, Atem Edai, God says, Israel, you are my witnesses. So if we are his witnesses, then we need to bring his testimony. We need to bring his name to the game. And so... I believe that there is an awakening that is happening in Israel because I don't want to toot my own horn, but from the stage that I was on, many people received applaud and many people clapped. But as soon as I started talking about Hashem, the auditorium erupted. It was the loudest of all cheers, not for Jeremy, for Hashem. Everyone right now wants to bring Hashem's presence into Israel. And so our fellowship is just on the cutting edge of that. But Bezrat Hashem, that voice will get stronger and stronger. And so we should all merit to bring Hashem as much as possible into our lives, into Israel. And may he win our wars. Um, I mean, <clears throat> Jeremy, you uh beautiful. You spoke beautifully just now. You spoke beautifully at the conference. I was very proud of you. Um, and uh, you you faced a lot of challenges. There were a lot of things that were standing in your way from actually delivering your message with clarity and conviction, and you did it anyways. And um, and that's ultimately, you know, the question. The question is, okay, so so we're talking about Hashem, but what does that look like? What does that look like to truly connect that knowledge? Okay, without Hashem, there's no Savior other than Hashem. That's it. Now take that and infuse that into our essence, into our consciousness, into our very being through a real leader of Israel, and how would that manifest in Israel's posture to the world? I don't know necessarily the answer to that question. <clears throat> and I think what I'm going to share with you today starts answering that question, but I know it doesn't finish it. Because ultimately, 
a leader has to be willing to put such faith in Hashem that the rest of the world would just, for example, you know, I gave a speech um, to, a, to a group that went down south, and I was so enraged that I said, you know, if I was the leader of Israel October 8th, there are three levels of what I would do. Okay, the first and least admirable level, the basic level, would be to say, okay, well, where's Hamas's headquarters? It's under this school, it's under that hospital, under this school, that hospital. Bunker buster bombs in every single one of those places. I don't care if it's under a school or a hospital. If they, if they, um, if there are any innocent civilians in Gaza, which I doubt, their blood is on them. That's number one. Number two, the way Gaza looks now that it's rubble, that is how Tehran should look. That is what Israel should have done to Tehran. We should have attacked with such ferocity Iran. They are the head of the snake. And if we were to absolutely humble them and bring them to their knees, then Hamas and Hezbollah and other, their other ancillary tentacles would wither away. But arguably what we should do is take a D9 to the Temple Mount, knock down the Dome of the Rock, and build the Beit HaMikdash. And the whole world would be so thrown aback by such a thing. And if we say, if you want to stand with us and be our brothers and our friends and offer sacrifices in our temple, we invite you to be our brothers and our friends. And if you want to stand against us, you will feel the wrath of the God of Israel. And so maybe it was good that I didn't speak at the conference. But I think that we have, we have to, because, okay, we, we heard Jeremy here. We heard Tehillah. We understand that what's happening here isn't random. This is leading us in a, in a direction in the chaos, the psychosis, the insanity of the world was foreseen that it's all part of the plan and things are happening exactly as they're supposed to be happening. We remember that this isn't just happening to us, like Jeremy said, it's happening for us, for us, guiding us. And if we weren't such a stiff-necked people, sometimes I, on some level, I can understand the deep psychotic pathological resentment of the world that on the deepest level that they're not even conscious of aware of themselves, they must be saying, Am Yisrael, what is taking you so long? Turn your hearts to Hashem, put your faith in Hashem and do what you need to do. And so we're not doing it. And then we're seeing this nonsense of some, you know, morbidly obese Englishman with plastic hair in South Africa saying that we're guilty of genocide and the whole farcical joke of what that is. And so, like Tehillah said, that's why it comforted me. The prophet Isaiah said, this is happening to us to believe and to understand. To believe and to understand. And to, to understand, to, to really bring it into our hearts, to our consciousness, our awareness. But how is all of this bringing us closer to that conclusion? So this is a little, I would say the rest of what I have to share with you is perhaps a commentary on what you've heard Jeremy and Tehillah say. So let's get into all of this. Let's open up the Torah portion of the week. What's always, it always shines a light on our time. A little back in this portion, you know, it, it's we see one of the most prevalent patterns in Jewish history. avot siman lebanim. The acts of the fathers are what happens to the fathers. So what the fathers go through is a sign for what the children go through. So let's start by zooming out. There was a famine in Canaan, and Abraham has to leave. He goes down to Egypt, and he becomes wealthy, and ultimately becomes hated and resented and perceived as a threat, and he has to leave. And the same thing happens to Isaac who becomes wealthy and successful and ends up being hated for it, and he has to leave. And we saw in the last portions the same pattern with Jacob. But even in the higher resolution, 
with Yaakov. He goes to Haran, to Lavan's house with nothing. And he works for Lavan. He's cheated by him again and again and again. But despite it all, he makes Lavan actually very wealthy. And, uh, and you know, 100% due to Hashem's blessing and protection, he becomes very wealthy himself, despite Lavan trying to cheat him out of it every step of the way. And then what happened? The same pattern. Lavan starts looking at Yaakov differently, with different eyes, with eyes of jealousy and suspicion and resentment. And Lavan didn't even have to say anything. Yaakov felt it. Jacob felt it. And being a man of truth and not of self-delusion, do we know about La about Yaakov, that he embodied the attribute of truth, he understood that there was no constellation of events in which staying with his father-in-law would be a blessing. And he knew it was time to go before it was too late. And in this Torah portion, we see the same thing happen to Bnei Israel, the children of Israel. Who is Israel? Jacob, right? Next generation, generation after, the same thing happened. Seventy souls descended to Egypt <clears throat> and their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren multiplied greatly and they flourished. And then what happens? Joseph and his brothers passed away and the Torah tells us that a new Pharaoh arises. A new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And I don't think that this is just saying that he didn't know Joseph personally. It's saying that he didn't know of Joseph. He didn't recognize or acknowledge that it was the very people who he would soon come to despise and enslave and murder, Yosef's people. He didn't realize that it was those very people who were the greatest source of Egypt's wealth and abundance and superpower status. After all, it was Yosef's advice that catapulted Egypt to being hands down the strongest nation in the world. So strong that the Egyptian people, much of the planet, and most importantly, Pharaoh himself thought he was God. And this indeed was the source of his very undoing, right? What does God do? He humbles the haughty. And there's nothing haughtier than actually being fully convinced that you yourself are God. And it was this hubris and this legendary, epic arrogance, this belief that, you know, he, whatever he wanted to do, that's the ultimate good. And nobody's to say otherwise and no one's to stand in the way. And if he says up is down, then up is down. We see this in the world. So much of the world, they know who's good and who's bad here, but they say it's not convenient for us. We don't have the courage or the integrity to stand with Israel. So we're just going to say that they're evil and they're bad. And who's going to say we're wrong? If we're all saying it, then that's just the truth. That's just the truth. And that was the key to Pharaoh's downfall. You almost have to feel bad for Pharaoh, although not at all, because, um, you know, while he thought that he was the wisest and the most omnipotent one in the world, one thing he didn't know was that the children of Israel were God's chosen people, the firstborn of the God of Israel. He didn't know that he who blesses Israel will be blessed and he who curses Israel will be cursed. But he was going to find out soon. He was going to find out soon. And that British plastic haired, twirly, powdered wig man in South Africa is going to find out soon as well, along with so many of the other nations that are turning against us. And, and I believe that that's what we're seeing play out right now with the global superpower of our day. And who's that really still on some level, even though it's definitely a, a superpower in freefall? The United States of America. I think that that is the, the United States is the last bastion of national idolatry that the nation of Israel, the people of Israel still have in our hearts. We still have, there's so many idols that are being shattered systematically 
but that of America being our people, our friends, our allies, our back, our supports. Without them, how could we do it? That's true. You know, America has been a tremendous blessing for the Jews in so many ways. It is, you know, it, it, but it's just as true that so much of the success and prosperity and the superpower status that the U.S. enjoys today is due in disproportionate measure to the Jews. Science and arts and finance and technology and military. I mean, just on one thing, who even knows if the U.S. would have even survived, would have been victorious in World War II without nuclear technology discovered by the Jews? That's just one example. Yes, America has been a blessing uh, to, to the Jews. There's no question about it. But, and, and American Jews, by the way, are the first to admit it. But perhaps even more than America being a blessing to the Jews, the Jews have been a blessing to America. And I'm not going to spend my time proving that out. You, you either see it or you don't. And so, Ari, though, can I just say one yeah, thing about please. that? Because it's really become really clear to me lately because I always saw like America and Israel were allies, meaning the greatest loss that America could really absorb would be if Israel was destroyed. <laughs> that would be devastating for America's security. That would be devastating for America's morale. That would be devastating <clears throat> for the fundamental of what America's existence is all about, it would be horrible. So I always thought like, okay, Israel and America, we're sort of allies, but it's not true. And that's become quite clear with the Biden administration. The believers in God in America, those people are our allies. But the Biden administration, the State Department, the American officials, the leadership right now of the United States of America, they are not our allies. They are the that's ones that are telling That's my whole piece, dude. It's exactly. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's uh, no. What you're saying, you're, what you're saying is right. They're not our allies, you know, and and um and they are on the way down. And you know, who was it that just wrote here? Um, America is coming down because due to abortion, the judgment will be coming soon. That's not true. It's not due to abortion. Abortion is one of many, many, many symptoms of the absolute moral decay. You can't arbitrarily choose abortion and not um, the genital mutilation of confused kids that are watching TikTok. And, and that's, not, that, that's not bad. That's not the reason. No, America is, is on a free fall. And, and, um, and part of that is just, you see it there. Everything that America used to stand for, it, I actually had some sort of comfort after the elections in Taiwan just happened, Jeremy, that uh, the Biden administration, the old school Trump would have been like, yes, Taiwan, we're with you. But no, no, no. That's not that's not what Biden said. He said, no, we do not support Taiwan's independence. They're supporting China like every bad actor in America, America in the world. America is seeking to ingratiate themselves to. And the actual forces of good and truth and values that the values that America was founded upon, they're betraying not only internally, but when it comes to on the global stage. You know, and, and in America, it's clear that a new pharaoh has aris arisen who doesn't remember or recognize or acknowledge the blessings of the Jewish people, right? Since October 7th, we heard a, a handful of words signaling friendship and goodwill from America. Jeremy, you know our mutual friend that said, sent us the link to Biden's speech immediately after October 7th. Look how passionate, look how wonderful. And I was like, it's words, it's words. Wait 10 minutes. Because over the last no, weeks and months- No, say that. Look how beautiful Biden is talking about Israel. There is that famous verse where Asaph says that he kissed Jacob 
But over the Hebrew, there are six dots written over the word kiss. And that was to teach us that it looks like a kiss, but Asaph came to bite his neck. And that is exactly, I heard like very kissy language as he's fueling the Hamas in order to fight the IDF. Yeah. Let's not look at their words. Let's look at their actions. But some Jews are just so fluffy. They're just like, oh, but just take a minute and just take it in. Just take it in. You know, and I was just so disgusted by it, even at that moment, knowing what was in store. And we see over the last weeks and months that those words are being exposed more than ever as empty, vacuous hypocrisy, as lies that are intended to ensnare the Jewish people into horrific self-destruction. Because let's remember, right after October 7th surprise attack, genocidal rapist torturing jihadist you know that that speech that biden gave my own family were were, were was singing his praises and explaining why it was so good that they voted for him i'm just so embarrassed on their behalf you know and love and solidarity with israel and oh i'm so happy that the grown-ups are in charge so many of them kept on saying and then in a move of absolute chutzpah israel began our counteroffensive against hamas in our in our chutzpah Chutzpahdik insistence that we survive. And with this tragic predictability, the familiar attacks on the Jewish state started pouring in like a torrential flood and genocide and ethnic cleansing and crimes against humanity. You, you all know what I'm talking about. You're seeing it right before, uh, you know, right before our eyes in a flash. Really, we stand alone. The masks are so quickly coming off. It's becoming increasingly clear that not only is America not our friend, but they are very much our adversary. And as extreme a statement as that may sound, it isn't clear who poses a greater existential threat to Israel, Hamas or our old friend, the United States of America. And yes, I do recognize that we're talking about the administration, the government, and not necessarily the people. I'm, I'm familiar with the polls, but unfortunately, you know, the, the people that a nation elects, like it or not, is a reflect of the nation, it's a reflection of the nation itself. And unless they stand up to that leadership, they will share in the responsibility and the consequences of the actions of their elected leaders. And so, yeah, that's what I said. You know, I, I asked, who is a greater threat to Israel, Hamas or the current U.S. administration? And before you discount that statement as an overreaction or an exaggeration, you got to just hear what happened just this past week. Right. Because, uh, you know, so much is happening. Right. It's easy that you could have possibly missed this. So for it feels like the hundredth time, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. Um, I feel like in my mind, the word Blinken has become like a derogatory curse word. Like, oh, my stomach hurts. I have to Blinken. I don't know. It's just like I just can't stand him. I'm so repulsed by him. He made his way to Israel. Uh, you know, I think it was actually his fourth trip since October 7th. But it felt like his hundredth. And before his meeting with Prime Minister uh, Netanyahu, there was this tremendous optimism by many in Israel that America has to stand with us and support us in our existential war against Hamas. People were still really optimistic about it. But after witnessing the press conference following that meeting, the faces of so many of the news anchors reporting on it were just downcast, were downtrodden. I really think that when history looks back at these difficult times for Israel, this press conference will be considered a turning point in the U.S.-Israel relationship. It'll be considered the as the moment when the masks came off and it became clear to anyone with the courage to see it that America had turned its back on Israel like never before when Israel needed America most. Laman te'aminu v'tavinu. 
as Isaiah says. So we should understand. You know, I was actually thinking of playing the entire press conference, but it was 28 minutes long, and I didn't have the time to pull out the highlights that I wanted to. So I just have the quotes that I'm going to share with you, a few of them, a few of them. But the press conference started with Blinken declaring some empty, stupid platitudes about caring about Israel. And even within those empty platitudes, he managed to compare the suffering of the hostages and their families to the suffering of the jihadi Gazans, who have proven a thousand different ways that they are Hamas, that they supported Hamas, they cheered Hamas, they even participated, if they could, in the October 7th Hamas massacre. This is known. But to Anthony Blinken, the suffering of Hamas and their supporters and their sympathizers and their participants is the same as the suffering of the hostages. It's just such moral blindness and bankruptcy. But anyways, forget all the fluff, right? When it came to the policies that America was not, was not recommending but was demanding of Israel, it became clear that America was insisting that Israel do nothing short of lose. Lose. Lose this war for our very survival. There's really no other way to see it. You know, to start with, he demanded that Israel continue to provide food and fuel and supplies to UNRWA. You know, the United Nations Relief Works, or uh, what's it, UNRWA? Whatever. It's the United Nations in Gaza, okay? Totally ignoring the overwhelming torrents of unrefuted, undeniable facts, meaning there's no one that's even refuting this. There's no one that's trying to disprove it. It's just so obvious and clear that the UNRWA is Hamas. There, the, many of them, card-carrying members of UNRWA, were terrorists. They were caught as terrorists. It was proven that an UNRWA doctor tortured and starved hostages in his own home. A hostage in his own home. UNRWA is Hamas and everybody knows it. But none of that mattered. According to the United States, they needed to have an UNRWA. And they said that uh, Israel needs to funnel untold tons of food and fuel and supplies to UNRWA as our hostages, may Hashem protect them, are starved and raped by the very people we're providing this life-saving aid to literally as we speak. And that was America's demand. We need to give UNRWA food and fuel and supplies. Who gives their mortal enemy that just holocausted them fuel and supplies? And as if that demand that we feed and supply Hamas wasn't enough, that we strengthen our mortal enemy as, as if that wasn't enough, he went on to demand that there should be no zero civilian casualties, despite the fact that he recognized that Israel is, quote, facing an enemy that embeds itself among civilians, who hides in and fires from schools, from hospitals, makes this incredibly challenging. But the daily toll on civilians in Gaza, particularly on children, is just far too high. Yes, we know that the terrorists that rape, tortured, and murdered your fellow Jews are hiding among civilians. Yes, we realize that, but too bad they win. We're going to reward that behavior and say they're safe. You're not allowed to fight them. And if you do, you're fighting us. That means that those terrorists are safe and that you have to lose. Sorry, Israel. Sorry. And then to seal the deal, he declared, the United States unequivocally rejects any proposals advocating for the resettlement of Palestinians outside of Gaza. Just take a second and just Listen, the United States unequivocally rejects any proposals advocating for the resettlement of Palestinians outside of Gaza. You know, sometimes I watch, what's her name? The, um, the, the Speaker of the House, 
makes statements. She's like, and I've clarified a thousand times and she makes another unclear, ambiguous statement. But when it comes to Israel, their statements are super clear. No, you know, he demanded that the Gazan Hamas sympathizing jihadists must not be allowed, allowed to leave Gaza. That's right. The United States makes it clear that these innocent refugees shouldn't be allowed to leave Gaza even if they want to. And then he went on to say that they should be allowed to go back to northern Gaza and resettle there as soon as possible. I cannot think of one conflict in the world in which refugees are being forbidden the right to flee and resettle elsewhere by those who claim to care for their... Are they doing that in Russia and the Ukraine? No, of course not. They're, they're shipping them wherever they can possibly ship them. But no, not in Gaza. It, it, that's perhaps the most sick, twisted, and sinister of all the demands. Because why in the world would the U.S. insist that Israel allow these Nazi jihadists to massacre the Jewish people to stay, if not that they want Israel to be embroiled in this murderous nightmare indefinitely? So in the South... Can I also you know, just our, add one point, Ari? Yes. About northern Gaza? Last fellowship... I did an entire section about the, one of the most beautiful people that I've ever uh, known. His name was Ephraim Jackman, and he was killed in northern Gaza. So northern Gaza is still a war zone. So like, let the Hamas go back to the war zone that they're still trying to like get under control. Like, it's so obvious that they are trying to not only embroil Israel in a conflict forever by not allowing the refugees to leave, but they want Israel to fall in battle and put stumbling blocks in front of us from winning the battle to begin with. <clears throat> I mean, imagine that, God forbid, BB uh, gives in and acquiesces to these demands. Imagine the parents of Ephraim Jackson. Imagine the parents of all the soldiers who have died so bravely and valiantly fighting for Israel. Now just giving Gaza back to Hamas. Their children died for nothing, for nothing. Anyway, so in the South, our dear friend America is demanding that we strengthen our enemies by providing them with food and fuel, weaken ourselves by tying our hands behind our backs, and they ensure that the war will last as long as it takes for us to lose by refusing to allow our enemies to flee. You know, and, and for, you know, for time's sake, I'm not going to go into all the details and what's happening in the North, but it's just as bad, if not worse, because the stakes are even higher, because Hezbollah makes Hamas look like a bunch of jokers. And rather than taking measures to distance Hezbollah from Israel's border and allow hundreds of thousands of Jews living in the north to finally return home, no, America demands, uh, not only do they not weaken Hezbollah at all, but it strengthens them by effectively demanding that Israel cede sovereign territory to the Hezbollah, not send the Jews back, because what they're saying is by keeping Hezbollah, they're not trying to decrease their weapons or their missiles or their troops, nothing at all. But rather they're strengthening Hezbollah in exchange for promises from Hezbollah to mean absolutely nothing. If you want to go into the details, go to JNS. JNS, by the way, a very good source of news. And read Carolyn Glick's article called Victory is More Important Than U.S. Support. Victory is more important than U.S. support. She's the best, Carolyn Glick. Anyways, I'm not going to go too much more into this, but just to put salt into the open wound, to seal the deal just in case there's any ambiguity left regarding America's intent, he went on to call for a Palestinian state. As I told the prime minister, every Arab partner that I met with on this trip said they're ready to support a lasting solution that ends the long-running cycle of violence and ensures Israel's security, blah, blah, blah. 
but they underscored that this can only come through a regional approach that includes a pathway to a Palestinian state. A Palestinian state. Gaza, Gaza was the Palestinian state, and look, that's, look what it looked like. And the Palestinian Authority, which America is insisting, takes the mantle of leadership and gets this reward of their own state, it is just as bad as Hamas. Up until October 7th, they killed more Jews than Hamas had. There's overwhelming videoed proof that they participated in the October 7th massacre. They pay, I think it's $30 million a month, subsidized by U.S. taxes, of course, to the family of terrorists who successfully murdered Jews. Babies in their bed, the families of, of those terrorists are getting money every single month for their successful murder of Jews. That's the Palestinian Authority that the United States and Blinken wants to give a Palestinian state in the heartland of Israel along the coast to, I mean, the Biden administration insisting on having this Palestinian state would result in hundreds of October 7th. And everyone knows it. And then for good measure, he repeated this vicious blood libel about me and Jeremy and our fellow rabid settlers. He said, extremist settler violence carried out with impunity, settlement expansion, demolitions, evictions all make it harder, not easier for Israel to achieve lasting peace and security. It, 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 it doesn't matter that there's been a total of zero settler violence, zero, zero. Actually, I want to share with you, if we have time here, a video, maybe we'll go a little bit over, a video uh, by our dear friend Ezri Tubi that he made highlighting exactly this. I continue to be alarmed about extremist settlers attacking Palestinians in the West Bank. Hello, Mr. President. We in Israel hear that you're alarmed by the extremist settlers attacking innocent Palestinians, leading to your decision to temporarily hold back the shipment of rifles to our country. And we would like to ask you one single question. Could you kindly provide a name, one name, of an innocent Palestinian Arab who lost their life in a premeditated attack carried out by a Jewish settler? I'm not referring to Palestinians killed while attempting to harm Jews, but rather a case where a settler deliberately left his home with the intention of killing a Palestinian. One name. From the beginning of this year. How about in the year 2022? 2021? 2020? 2019? 2018? 2017? Not even one incident, sir. Now let's look at the Jews that were intentionally slaughtered by those you worry about so much from the beginning of this year alone. February 26, two Jewish brothers on their way back home were fatally shot point blank in the murderous town of Hawala. Sweets were handed out the next day in the Palestinian streets. April 7th, a mother and two of her daughters were shot to death while driving to a vacation. Not one condemnation coming out from the innocent Palestinian society. May 30th, a father of two was shot to death in his car. July 20th, four Jews were murdered in a gasoline station near the ancient Jewish village of Eli. The terrorist family were subsequently added to the Palestinian authorities' payroll. August 19th, a father and his son were shot to death in the murderous town of Hawara, turning the perpetrators into heroes within their community. August 21st, the mother of three was murdered in front of one of her daughters and celebrations followed in the innocent Palestinian society. According to the official Israeli government site, in January 2023, there were 187 attacks against Jews in Judea and Samaria alone, 157 terror attacks in February, 183 in March, April, 147 terror attacks against real innocent civilians. 
Add to these figures dozens more casualties within the Green Line up to October 7th and hundreds more beyond and it's impossible not to see a clear picture. Mr. President, if giving the opportunity, the Arabs surrounding the Jewish settlements would slaughter our children, rape our wives, exactly like they did to us in the Gaza border, and we don't need another October 7th to prove it. With all due respect, Mr. President, but your characterization of the righteous Jews of Judea and Samaria as violent and notorious people is nothing less than another blood libel against the Jewish people and is a very big moral state. So clear, so absolutely crystal clear, so true, but none of that matters. Truth doesn't matter. Truth doesn't matter at all. You know, in, in, the, um, in the article, Carolyn Glick even quotes CNN anchor Jake Tapper, who quoted a member of the U.S. administration, that Netanyahu needs to decide between the explicit will of his electorate, right, the people of Israel who elected a right-wing government with people like Smotrich and Ben Gvir, they would have to decide between his coalition and them or the friendship of the United States of America. Ignore your people, Israel. Ignore your identity. Ignore your, your very essence of who you are and sell yourselves out for us, the friend of who... It's so crazy. What does that mean? If it isn't clear by now, our good friend America is demanding our prime minister rejects the will of the nation of Israel, the best interests, the very survival of the nation of Israel in exchange for the friendship and support of America. That, my friends, is not the behavior of a friend. That is the behavior of an enemy. And it reminds me of a story of this girl that I, I remember this story. I didn't even know if I should share it with But it was just so exact that this girl convinced her boyfriend to commit suicide. Here, watch is this. This young woman responsible for her boyfriend's suicide? Michelle Carter is accused of sending her boyfriend, Conrad Roy, a series of text messages urging him to take his own life. It's time, babe. You know that, Carter wrote. You got to do it. You're ready. Roy responded, Okay, I will. No more thinking. Yes, no more thinking. You need to just do it, she wrote back. Just park your car and sit there, and it will take like 20 minutes. It'll it's not take like 20 deal. minutes. It's not a big deal. I couldn't help but to think of that when I think about the absolutely dysfunctionally sick and twisted relationship that has developed between America and Israel right now. That's what's going on here. From this press conference, it became clear that America is coming to the table with one very clear demand, that Israel commits suicide. And just like that, all it took was one errant generation and a new pharaoh has arisen, a pharaoh that no longer knows Joseph. And so it would be very easy to feel the victim right now. I mean, based on everything I've said, it seems like that's the direction I'm going. It would be so easy to point fingers at Hamas and Hezbollah and Iran and the rest of the jihad and say, look at these monsters and look what they did to us. And it would be easy for us to look at America and the West and point out their double standards and hypocrisy. It's so easy. I just pretty much did a whole fellowship doing exactly that. And, and you know, in a world that seems to champion and reward the victim, victimhood status, everyone is in a mad race to be the greatest and the biggest intersectional victim in every front. It would be totally understandable for Israel to show the world where we're being victimized. But I think that all of us, this is happening to us to guide us to the realization that what Hashem wants from us is exactly the opposite to realize that we're not victims. And not only aren't we victims, but we need to own the situation we're in. We need to recognize that the flaws in our character and in our faith have allowed us to create such a dysfunctional, codependent, abusive relationship with America. It's we're, We got to own that. We have to own that. If we were the true nation of Israel, that, that would never, that would never go. 
right? A, a relationship with America that is so fundamentally toxic, it, that doesn't happen on its own. It takes both parties to allow for such a relationship to develop. One party lacks the awareness of their inherent value and the other, you know, senses that insecurity and wields it as a weapon to achieve their selfish desires. Now back to the Torah portion. We're going to wind this, wind this down soon. One could ask the question, why did there need to be 10 plagues? Couldn't there have been one massive devastating plague? Why the plague and the regret and the obstinance and the stubbornness on Pharaoh and another plague? What's it all about? And I believe the answer is that each plague was necessary. As we've spoken about in past years, it's really worth listening to past fellowships about Vaera, but necessary to systematically shatter the idols and the delusions, not only of the Egyptians, but perhaps even more importantly, for the Israelites, for the Jewish people themselves. Each plague brought the Israelites closer to one critical, necessary prerequisite for absolute physical redemption. And what was that? What was the most the one most important achievement Israel had to accomplish in order to merit full physical redemption? We all know the answer. Redemption of the spirit. Only when Israel removes the chains of psychological subjugation to the Egyptians, only when we break free of the spiritual chains that have been binding, the, uh, binding, binding us to the Egyptians for hundreds of years of slavery, that's not easy to break through. Only then were they primed and ready for physical redemption. Think about it. The first nine plagues didn't demand anything of the Israelites. They simply watched the God of Israel bring the Egyptian superpower to its knees, unraveling their false beliefs one at a time. But the tenth plague, the tenth plague, well, that demanded a great act of trust and faith in Hashem, which would ultimately determine whether they personally would merit to be a part of the redemption from Egypt, because we know that many Jews died in the plague of darkness. Many, many Jews didn't merit to leave Egypt. Because as, we, as we've discussed before, it took great faith to slaughter that paschal lamb, the lamb, the god of the Egyptians, and put its blood on your doorpost. Because if you did, and that redemption that Moshe promised did not happen, well, that would mean that you and your family would face certain death at the hands of the Egyptian taskmasters. Hashem brought about nine plagues all on his own, but in order to truly merit redemption, the Israelites had to act. We had to act in trust and faith and be a part of that tenth. And I believe that here in Israel, we're at the same crossroads right now that we were before the, the tenth plague. As, as a nation, we need to be willing to shatter our illusion of American friendship and our psychological dependence on America and their support. And instead of putting our hopes in the hands of Joseph Biden, who can't even construct a sentence, we put them exclusively where they should have been since the very beginning, in the hands of Hashem. That's what the whole world is waiting for. We in Israel need to do our part to restore our self-respect, our independence, our courage, our faith, our strength, and invite the rest of our allies, America included, to meet us there. We can only do this by internalizing the truth that our survival is not in their hands, that our survival is in the hands of the creator of heaven and earth and in the creator of heaven and earth in God alone. God alone, not well, God put America there for us to be able to be supported by them. No, in Hashem's hands alone. And it's then that we'll realize that America and our other teetering allies need us far more than we need them. Israel needs to declare to America that we refuse to accept even one more penny of their foreign aid. Keep it. Keep it. It's been insulting since day one. Their foreign aid has already crippled us by making us reliant on their weapons manufacturing, 
rather than developing our own. And by, by telling them that without Israel as their only reliable ally in the Middle East, America would be locked out of the entire region. I feel like America knows this, and there's some sort of bluff where they don't want to recognize it or say it out loud how absolutely reliant they know that they are on Israel because it may just wake Israel up. But by telling by Israel telling America that the only condition in which we would even consider accepting munitions or other weapons is if America reallocates those weapons away from being considered foreign aid and reclassifies them as a military expenditure. As a military expenditure due to the recognition that we are the tip of the spear in the battle of the global jihad that is coming for them and that we're an extension of their own military and that they're getting out of it cheap. Only then when they recognize that. But, you know, for, for those that say, well, what about the Iron Dome? We need to make it very clear. We need to make it very clear. We don't need the Iron Dome. As a matter of fact, we'd rather not be burdened with having it. Because from this point onward, any country that dares fire a missile at Israel will face the wrath of the God of Israel and will never dare raise a hand to the nation of Israel again. So we don't need their precision-guided missiles. We don't need them. That's what we should say to them. You don't want us to have your precision-guided missiles? Then we'll just use our non-precision-guided missiles. We'll just dump them out. It's on you, right? If they want to dangle those over our head and say you have to commit national suicide and make a deal with Hezbollah and have a Palestinian state or we're not going to give you our precision-guided missiles, keep them, keep them. We will make use of what we have. And if we have to use our imprecise missiles, then so be it. Any collateral damage is on them. You know, here was actually Prime Minister Netanyahu's uh, address uh, to the uh, to the nation of Israel and to the world after that press conference. I want to make a few points absolutely clear. Israel has no intention of permanently occupying Gaza or displacing its civilian population. Israel is fighting Hamas terrorists, not the Palestinian population. And we are doing so in full compliance with international law. The IDF is doing its utmost to minimize civilian casualties, while Hamas is doing its utmost to maximize them by using Palestinian civilians as human shields. The IDF urges Palestinian civilians to leave war zones by disseminating leaflets, making phone calls, providing safe passage corridors, while Hamas prevents Palestinians from leaving at gunpoint and often with gunfire. Our goal is to rid Gaza of Hamas terrorists and free our hostages. Once this is achieved, Gaza can be demilitarized and de-radicalized, thereby creating a possibility for a better future for Israel and Palestinians alike. Okay. You know, I mean, like, what? who is he trying to convince? Who is he talking to? It's so clear that the more we seek to convince the world that we're good, the more we seek to get the world to love us, the more they hate us. They hate us more and more and more the more we seek to get them to love us. Perhaps we just need to stop caring what they think about us and just say we need to do, as Jeremy said at the beginning, what is right and what is true and what is a direct manifestation and expression of our faith and our trust in the God of Israel. That's what we need to do. Not to do anything good as to prove to the world and to look good in the eyes of the nations, but if we're going to do something good, then it is because it is the good and the right thing to do, not to convince anyone of anything. And so I look at Benjamin Netanyahu, and I'm sure he's a well-intentioned guy, but that's a Jew that is still psychologically subjugated. Those are the words of a leader who, however, you know, I'm sure he's done a lot of good things to Israel. I'm not trying to bash him, but he is not the leader that will reflect the liberation of the spirit that the majority of Jews in Israel 
are experiencing right now, every day, more and more. And that's what this frustration is about. The whole nation is so frustrated that we are moving and, and growing exponentially in our faith and our trust, and it's simply not being reflected in our leadership. The majority of the nation is there. Our leadership simply is not. And so, okay, I want to, I want to sort of, I want to share this last little teaching with you um, before I wind down this fellowship. Uh, it, it was just it's such a beautiful teaching. You know, I found this teaching from inside. I couldn't find the source itself, what sefer it was in, but what what book it is. But but here it is. The teaching quotes chapter eight, verse fifteen of the Torah portion. As you see right there on top of you, read Hebrew. Right? What, what does it say? And Hashem said to Moshe, Arise in the morning and stand firm before Pharaoh as he emerges from the water. And so under that, the Orachim, the famous Orachim Akadosh says, Why did he approach Pharaoh as he emerged from the Nile where he clearly went for his morning bathroom stop? Right? He went in the Nile because if he's a god, he doesn't actually need to do anything like pee-pee or poo-poo. So he would go into the Nile and do it in there and nobody would see it. So he's on the way out of this whole farce of his very essence and he's coming up naked from the Nile in a very compromised, vulnerable position. And so the Orachim Akadah says, why did he approach Pharaoh as he emerged from the Nile where he went for his morning bathroom stop? He approached him there in order that he should catch Pharaoh in a compromising position and not, God forbid, as someone stands before royalty or greatness. Rather, Moshe, Moses, shall be the royalty and greatness himself, standing before smallness and irrelevance, as which, which Pharaoh is. And he goes on to say that, yes, Moshe, Moses, was more humble than any man. But when he was sent before Pharaoh, Hashem sent him, he sent him to be strong and upright. And from here we learn that when engaging in negotiations and diplomacy with the goyim, with the nations, we need to stand strong and proud and upright that in that situation, there's no room for humility. That is simply not the time and the place for it. Even Moses, who is more humble than every man. Because what is all this leading us to? All of this, all of the talking and all of the things that are happening in Israel, every single thing, as Tehillah so beautifully said, this is all leading us to a place to believe, to understand, to infuse in our very essence that Hashem God is the one and the only. The one and the only. We cannot put our trust in anywhere else. And I just know that the day is coming soon, my friends, where we will, where we will not only see a great salvation, but also in the very same moment of that salvation, we will see the redemption. We will understand why we had to go through all of this in an experiential way. And Hashem is with us. And it will become clear. Someone, you know, someone wrote about Germany that they're standing with us. Let's see how things play out. But those who stand with Israel right now will indeed be blessed in the eyes of Hashem. And the rest of the world, America included, will have judgment to pay. Judgment to pay. That is not saying that Israel, we don't also have judgment to pay for allowing the relationship to go so awry and so dysfunctional because of our lack of faith and our lack of trust in Hashem. That We have to work that through also. But that doesn't justify calling the victims of the worst genocide into genocidal terror, calling it the evil that we are seeing so clearly before us, there will be judgment to that. And all of you, my friends, no matter where you find ourselves, where you find yourselves, you are that righteous remnant. 
you are those sparks of light and goodness and blessing to us. And God will see every single one of you and please, he should protect you. And he shall spread his wings of love and protection over you during these difficult days to come. Because if anyone has been a blessing to Israel and the Jewish people and to us personally, it's all of you. So may Hashem bless and protect you. May, may, may I have the honor of blessing you with the blessing of the High Priest of Israel. Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmerecha Ya'er Adonai panavelecha v'yichunecha Yisa Adonai panavelecha v'yisem lecha shalom May Hashem bless and protect you. May He shine His light and His countenance upon you. And may He give you peace. Amen. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.